This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Creating a podcast isn't that simple. It's more than just recording yourself and uploading it. To really get your show to be everything you want it to be, you're going to need a little more than that. You need easy, reliable hosting so your time can be spent creating your content. The most accurate download stats so you know if you're reaching the audience you're wanting to. And a web page that makes setting up totally easy on you and won't take up too much of your valuable time. And Blueberry offers all of this and more for hosts and aspiring hosts alike. Simple media hosting, a fully integrated WordPress website with their PowerPress sites. So if you already have a podcast or you've always dreamed about starting one, head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to sign up and the first month is on us. The Blueberry support team is available to walk you through the steps of migrating your show without losing any subscribers or to help you get started in the process of launching your new show. With the first month for free, using promo code DREAM, you've got no more excuses. So, let's get started. I would like to take the time to thank everyone for continuing to support California Dreaming on social media by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as those who have left reviews for the show on Apple Podcasts or whichever platforms you listen to the show on, by spreading the word, by recommending California Dreaming in listening groups, and of course, supporting us on Patreon as well. There are about 20 exclusive bonuses on Patreon, and for as little as $1 a month, you can gain access to all of those episodes. This week, I would like to thank new patrons Nina M., Bridget C., Binder D., Lynn B., Dolly R., Raquel L., and Lisette S. I would also like to thank Anna W., Jordan B., and Anna B. for raising your pledges to the next tiers. I would also like to congratulate Anna B. on her new job, and it means so much to me that one of your first moves was to come back to Patreon and raise up your support. So I wish you all the luck in the world at your new job. And Anna W., Fred extends his gratitude for your pledge towards his defense fund as well. If you would like to make a one-time donation to help support, you can do so through our PayPal using our email, californiapod at gmail.com. Oh, and one more thing. I mispronounced, let's see, Kari's name. Her name is spelled K-A-R-I, and I pronounced it Carrie in the anniversary special. So sorry about that. I also wanted to say, how about that Dave Weir, you guys? I want to thank you again for doing that interview with me, Dave. It was so fun listening back to you, and you're so insightful, and your laugh is infectious. It was totally the best. I would also like to thank a few people who have been so kind to send me some presents recently. Tanya T. sent me a housewarming gift. As you know, I moved to Huntington Beach in March, so thank you for that. Anna W., Thank you for all of the goodies that you sent for me and the puppies all the way from Sweden. Julie from the Women Behind the Veil podcast for the totally adorable surfing French bulldog tumblers and the Dallas Cowboys beach towel. I loved it. Oh, and the personalized koozie. Uh, my husband is not going to like the beach towel too much, and I just got the stuff today as I'm recording this. So I'm going to try and see what his reaction is because I just hung it in uh, the bathroom and he does not like the cowboys 
And also today I received a package from Mar W that contained my very first commissioned painting. So go check out her Facebook page, Pipe Paint Studio, to see all of the beautiful works of art that she has created. Thank you so much for that, Mar. It is now hanging in my room right next to my bed. I'm way too spoiled by all of my friends here. Your friendship and support of the show is more than enough, but your thoughtfulness is just over the top. And I want you to know that I cherish every single one of you. Thank you. Okay, so dreamers, a few weeks ago, I poked fun at the Canadian justice system in their two-part series, The Tale of the Stopwatch Gang. So today, I figured maybe I could highlight a case from right here in California that illustrates a disturbing and tragic breakdown of our system here. Though I do feel as though we've discussed cases where the justice system has failed victims and survivors in the past. Emily Doe immediately comes to mind. Mary Vincent, who I covered on Patreon in case you are wondering. But this one we're going to discuss today, it's not funny, and it's not anything to joke about. As a matter of fact, it's pretty infuriating. So before I go on, I have to warn you that this episode contains details involving violence towards children and teenage girls, including sexual violence sexual abuse, and the murder of young girls. Please consider this before listening to this episode. Listener discretion is strongly advised. He was born in Culver City, California on April 9, 1979. After his parents divorced, he bounced around, living in various cities across Southern California. He would later describe his father as an alcoholic who regularly levied severe physical punishments. His mom was a psychiatric nurse, and beginning at the age of six, she placed him on psychiatric medication. At the age of 10, he spent 60 days in a mental institution. In school, he was characterized as seriously emotionally disturbed. He was diagnosed with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. While in high school, he often worked odd jobs, including a stint as a lifeguard at Lake Arrowhead. Sometime during his teen years, he was convicted of trespassing on school property. He graduated from the Rim of the World High School in 1997, earning an overall 3.2 grade point average and a reported IQ of 113. Following high school, he moved down to San Diego, where he found work at a Big Five sporting goods store. In 2000, he was convicted of the sexual abuse and beating of a 13-year-old female neighbor. He would spend five years in prison for this crime and was released on parole for three years. And during those three years, it was determined he was found to be in violation of the terms of his parole at least seven times that went under review and at least one instance of residing too close in proximity to a school. Another one of his violations included an investigation by his parole officer for being in possession of marijuana. This incident would later be dismissed. He had been required to wear a GPS tracking device on his ankle up until November of 2008, at which point it was removed per the terms of his release. 
While he had this tracking device on his ankle, it recorded a total of 168 parole violations. The GPS data documented things such as spending time in close proximity to numerous schools, daycares, and a prison where he had been suspected of supplying a prisoner with contraband. He was also found to have spent time in some remote locations that would come into play later on in our story. And then, on February 28, 2010, he would be arrested and charged with the February 25th murder of 17-year-old Chelsea King. Her body was found in a shallow grave five days later on March 2nd. He would soon be linked through DNA found on some of her discarded clothing, but also to another case, the attempted rape of 23-year-old Candace Monkeo as she was jogging two months earlier in December of 2009, though luckily she managed to fend off his attack and escape. Once in custody, he would admit to the February 2009 disappearance and murder of Amber Dubois, whose remains were found more than a year later in March of 2010. His name is John Albert Gardner III. And despite being a registered sex offender, he still managed to murder two girls. Amber was walking to school. Chelsea and Candace were jogging. Yet none of these girls or their families realized that a violent predator was living so close by as their girls unwittingly found their way into the crosshairs of a killer who was waiting exactly for that moment. This was and is a disgustingly egregious breakdown of the sex offender registry program in California. And we are going to look at how something like this could happen. The issues that needed to be addressed, the laws that needed some fine tuning, and the ways to prevent something like this from ever happening again. In this 97th episode of California Dreaming, the tale of a failure of the system. Hundreds of volunteers desperately searched countless square miles in the areas surrounding Escondido, California, which is located in San Diego County, looking for missing 14-year-old Amber Dubois. Her parents, Mom Carrie McGonagall, and her dad, Mo Dubois, and her stepdad, Dave Cave. The three parents set aside whatever differences that they may have had in order to search for their 14-year-old, whose story began the day before Valentine's Day of 2009. Amber was a very bright young lady who earned straight A's in school. She was very close with both of her parents, despite the divorce and dad living about 100 miles or 160 kilometers north in the city of Buena Park, California. She was a sweet child who enjoyed spending time with her friends and always enjoyed having her nose in a book, unlike most of her friends who preferred shopping for clothes and makeup. That wasn't quite Amber's thing. One of her biggest passions in life was a deep love for animals. So when she was assigned a science project of raising a baby lamb, 
she was super excited. The morning of the 13th, she was going to head to school with a check for $200 to pay for her lamb. She told her mom how much she loved her and thanked her for getting her her lamb. She got the check from her stepdad, Dave, who was headed out the door for his workday. And then Amber walked out the door and headed for school for the last time. The last Amber was seen was at approximately 7 a.m., only a couple of blocks from Escondido High School. Two different parents reported seeing her walking up the street. The first parent spotted her walking alone. The second saw her, but there was a man standing near her. It is unclear how the school tried to contact Amber's parents to let them know that she hadn't shown up for school It's my understanding that they did make contact or attempt to make contact, but her parents were unaware that anything was wrong until 4.30 p.m. or so rolled around, and Amber still had not returned home from school. Dave left the family home to go looking for his stepdaughter. He went to her first class and happened to find her first period teacher was still there, and she informed him that Amber was absent from school that day. He immediately got that sinking feeling that something was terribly wrong. He contacted Amber's mom to let her know, and she in turn contacted Amber's dad in hysterics, telling him that she doesn't know where Amber is. From there, a massive search for Amber ensued. They retraced the route that she should have taken to go to school. They had thousands of flyers made and put them all over town and knocked on every single door in the surrounding neighborhoods. Amber's dad took a leave from his job and moved into a nearby hotel with his girlfriend, Rebecca Smith, to help participate in the search. But as the days wore on and no leads were being uncovered, the suspicions began to shift towards the home in which Amber lived. Escondido police began taking a hard look at her stepdad, Dave. It didn't really begin to sink in that Dave had come under suspicion until about two weeks or so after Amber vanished. One of the individuals in charge of the search eventually told Dave that it would be best if he not participate in the search because he doesn't want to be the one to find Amber. He was confused by this and asked why, and he was told, If he were to find her, they're going to pin this on him. He was the last one to see Amber alive the morning that she vanished. Amber had gotten up and was ready to head to school, and she was anxious to get going because she was going to turn that check-in to get her lamb. Dave was finished getting ready for his day when Amber came in and asked for the check. He said he would give it to her before he left though she came upstairs a few more times asking again and he was like, I promise I will get you the check. Just wait for me downstairs. Chill out. He finally came down and handed her the check while she was eating some cereal. There you go. Go get your lamb. I'll see you tonight. I love you. And Dave went out the door to head for work. That was the last time he ever saw Amber. But here's the thing, dreamers. The thing that raised investigators' suspicions. 
Dave didn't go to work. He said he went to the gym and then he returned home to work on his taxes. By the time he got back, Amber was gone, of course. He likely didn't even think anything of it. She was supposed to be gone and in school. Apparently, the school had either emailed or called or both, at least that's what they did for me, that Amber was not present at school that day. Prior to that morning, Amber had perfect attendance since the beginning of the school year. When suspicion began swirling around Dave, Amber's mom, Carrie, began to think the unthinkable as well, that Dave might have had something to do with it too. He had shown up at Carrie's work that day with chocolate-dipped strawberries and roses, ostensibly for Valentine's Day, even though Valentine's Day wasn't until the next day. And throughout their relationship, Dave wasn't really ever one to celebrate it. And he kind of loitered around a workplace for about 45 minutes until Carrie finally had to tell him that he had to go, like there wasn't really any reason for him to be there. And investigators also came to find that Dave and Amber didn't exactly have the greatest relationship. As a matter of fact, the tension between the two had gotten to the point that the family had to seek counseling in order to deal with their issues. Dave admitted that they didn't have the perfect relationship. But all of you who have teenagers, especially if there are step-parents involved, you know that things can certainly be difficult and strained. Dave had rules for the house and conflict arose when Amber didn't want to abide by those. And because investigators began to think that Dave knew more than he was letting on, this caused Carrie to begin to think the same thing and tensions between the two of them grew as well. To the point that they all but stopped speaking to one another. Because every time they did, it turned into a fight. But according to Dave, the night prior to Amber's disappearance, they had called a truce. They had spent time together. They had gone shopping, perused some bookstores, and they had a really pleasant time with one another. But that still doesn't eliminate the possibility that Amber did something that caused Dave to become upset or enraged by the morning. So when law enforcement started zeroing in on Dave, they started asking some hard questions. And the answers that he would provide only caused Carrie's suspicions to become even more heightened. Dave was brought in for questioning within days of Amber having gone missing. They requested to photograph his hands and his torso. They took pictures of his arms, his back, his chest, documenting anything, scratches, bruises, or otherwise, that may have been visible. They didn't exactly straight out ask Dave if he killed Amber, but they asked him if he knew where she was, did he know anything about her disappearance. Those were the kinds of questions that he was subjected to when they hooked him up to the polygraph which he took voluntarily, eight times. To Dave, it was police having nothing to go on, so they were looking for something from him. He would take a polygraph, but police weren't satisfied and kept coming back. He felt that when it came to cases of missing children, parents are often looked at first. 
Now, police never came to Carrie and told her flat out that they suspected Dave, but they hinted around it. The man that she trusted and loved and had another child with, she began having doubts about him. Police kind of beat around the bush, but Carrie didn't. She directly asked Dave, Did you do this? Of course, he told her, absolutely not. But the writing was on the wall. Six weeks after Amber went missing, Carrie took their daughter, Allison, and moved out of the family home. A decision that shattered both of their worlds. She simply could not lay next to this man any longer each night. She didn't think this would ever have been a thing that Dave planned, but she did think that maybe Amber bugged him one too many times, perhaps for that check. Maybe they had a fight and he lost it. Something happened. Maybe he hit her. Maybe she tumbled down the stairs. No, she didn't think this was anything premeditated, but the possibility that this was an accident? Yeah. That maybe he covered it up? Yeah. His behavior that day, claiming to have gone to the gym, claiming to have gone home to do taxes, and then showing up at her work with flowers and chocolate-covered strawberries, all of that fueled her suspicions. Before long, everyone's lives began to crumble. Dave's scaffolding business faltered. He had once been the driving force, and now he was no longer able to even show up. Amber's dad, Mo, he lost his job, and his life savings went towards the search for Amber. And everyone was paranoid, including Dave and Carrie's younger daughter, Allison. Not only were lives falling apart, but everyone had lost faith in each other. They lost faith in humanity, and they were losing faith that they were ever going to find Amber. In August, six months after Amber vanished, Carrie's mother hired a team of live scent search and recovery dogs to retrace Amber's steps on the last day that she was seen. Carrie was holding on to the hope that Amber was still alive somewhere, and she was determined to find her. The dogs followed the path from their house, then up towards the freeway. They led their handlers to Escondido High School, and then along a 15-mile stretch of highway that led to the Paula Indian Reservation. This was confounding to Carrie, as they had never gone there before. So she started to think that whoever grabbed Amber brought her to this reservation. Then, more than ever, she was convinced that Amber was alive and close by, within 50 miles or 80 kilometers. But those of you who are familiar with San Diego County, you know that this area is vast, and it is sprawling and desolate with lots of hills. There's so much land out there, much more than one team of dogs that she was able to hire could ever search. But Carrie kept holding on to hope. The first anniversary of Amber's disappearance, February 13th, 2010, arrived with still no answers. 
They held a walkathon event in order to try and raise money to continue to be put towards the mounting costs of searching for her. But even after a year, they were no closer to finding Amber than the day that she vanished. Hanging on to faith, Carrie just didn't know when or how, but something, somehow, somewhere, has got a break. Somebody out there knew something. Then, one year and 12 days after Amber vanished, her loved ones woke up to the devastating news that another local teenage girl had gone missing. By this time, Carrie had taken to living with a roommate, and that roommate knocked on her bedroom door and told her there was another girl that has gone missing. She's 17. Her name is Chelsea. Chelsea King. Like Amber, she too earned top grades in school, an honor student. She had gone jogging on the afternoon of February 25, 2010, near Lake Hodges. This was only 10 miles or 16 kilometers from the location where Amber disappeared from. When Chelsea did not return home from her dog, her parents, Brent and Kelly, immediately contacted authorities and turned to the media to plea for help and for their daughter's safe return. The next day, they had thousands of flyers in hand, along with hundreds of volunteers who came out to help in the search effort, and that included Carrie, Moe, and Dave. They felt the connection immediately, even if their daughter's cases weren't related. They connected with the sadness and the grief and the heartache in looking for a child who failed to come home. It's a sad club to belong to, but driving out there to help with the search, they did not even have to think twice about it. As the volunteers, the Dubois and the King family searched, What the public and media did not know was police had already uncovered a very troubling clue. Chelsea's underwear and her socks were found near a hiking trail. They had been rushed over to the crime lab for analysis and DNA testing. And then, just as suddenly, three days after Chelsea disappeared, law enforcement made a shocking announcement to the media. A little after 4 p.m. on the afternoon of February 28, 2010, investigators with the Fugitive Task Force arrested 30-year-old John Albert Gardner III. The lab analysis of Chelsea's underwear found foreign DNA, and that DNA was linked to Gardner, a convicted sex offender who had a criminal record going back at least a decade. I mentioned earlier that he spent five years in prison for sexually assaulting a 13-year-old girl. That assault also included a severe beating as well. Four months before Amber was kidnapped, Gardner's GPS ankle device had been removed despite the 168 parole violations it recorded. Yep, you heard that right. The California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation and the parole system felt comfortable enough allowing this man who had raped and beaten a 13-year-old girl to no longer be kept under GPS surveillance. 
Never mind those 168 violations, right? Give this man his freedom back. It's absolutely absurd. Two months before Chelsea was murdered, he attacked Candace, the 23-year-old jogger, jogging on the same exact trail as Chelsea. She shared her story on Larry King Live following Gardner's arrest. He threw me to the ground and pinned me to the ground and I was screaming and he said, shut up. And I said, no, you're going to have to kill me first because I thought he was trying to rape me. He said, that can be arranged. Well, what Gardner didn't realize is that he was attempting to attack and rape the daughter of a world kickboxing champion and she put up the fight of her life. She raised her right elbow and bashed him square in the nose. He let go and put his hands over his face, turned away momentarily, undoubtedly stunned by the blow. Candace got up and ran as fast as her legs could take her, and she escaped with her life. Thank goodness. So investigators have Gardner's DNA, Not only had it been positively linked to Chelsea's articles of clothing, but also evidence collected in that attack on Candace. But they had yet to find Chelsea, and under questioning, Gardner denied involvement in both cases, even in the face of the damning DNA evidence. Then, two days later, while the San Diego District Attorney, Bonnie Dumanis, was in a meeting with law enforcement's top brass, Suddenly, everyone's electronic devices began chiming. They were all simultaneously receiving the news that everyone had been waiting for and dreading. Chelsea had been found, and she wasn't alive. Her body was discovered in a shallow grave close to a tributary near the southern shore of Lake Hodges. Gardner was promptly charged with Chelsea's murder and the assault on Candace. But in light of Gardner's arrest, Amber's family remained skeptical as to the possibility that he was involved with their daughter's case. But the skepticism was born of denial. Facing the possibility that Amber and Chelsea were linked through this man, if Amber's mom Carrie would have been willing to seriously entertain that possibility, It would mean that Amber was most certainly no longer alive, a hope that she had been hanging on to for a year. Carrie thought John Gardner was a sloppy, bumbling killer. Amber still had not been found. If Gardner caused Amber's disappearance, she figured he'd be just as sloppy and careless and they would have found her by now. While all of this was going on, Gardner's attorney was quietly trying to broker a deal with the district attorney, doing everything possible to save his client from a certain death sentence. The discussion centered around one very important person, Amber. Gardner's attorney was telling the DA, yeah, I'm pretty sure my client is going to be able to lead you to her remains and the DA needed to take that into serious consideration. She had a family that had been shattered, searching for answers for over a year by this point, and it became a matter of the desire to bring Amber home more than anything else. 
That was the priority. So the DA spoke to Chelsea's family about it. They have an offer to be directed to the remains of Amber. And if Gardner follows through and shows them where she is, then the prosecutors on the case will take the death penalty off the table. And the kings gave their blessings. Amber's family did not hesitate for a second when the kings needed them, and without hesitation did the same. If that meant they could bring their missing daughter home, then, yeah, make that deal. Nothing was going to bring their children back, but at least they could both be laid to rest. Of course, sadly connected for eternity, all because of John Albert Gardner III. The next night, Amber's mom and dad were asked to come in to the Escondido police station. Mo knew that the call was different from all the other previous calls, and Carrie sensed it was going to be bad right away. It had been 13 months by this time. Police were prepared to deliver the devastating news. They found Amber's remains. Carrie had been holding out, but in a way... When she was finally told, and the not knowing was over, there was a small sense of relief. The part that hurt Carrie the most was the way that Amber was found. Police had to tell her that they did not have all of her. They could not say for sure, but most likely it had to do with animal activity. And the irony? Amber was found only a mile from where the scent dogs had led their handlers to six months earlier near the Paula Indian Reservation. And then they learned this. Their daughter's killer was a convicted sex offender. A violent convicted sex offender with hundreds of parole violations logged by his GPS tracking device that should have sent him back to prison, possibly even for life. This man should have been sitting in a California prison when Amber disappeared, when Candace was attacked, and when Chelsea was murdered. This man should have been in prison. He had no business roaming around freely in society, unmonitored, the way that he was, Obviously. And because of Garner's confession, the cloud of suspicion that had been hanging over Amber's stepdad finally lifted. It was a relief for Carrie, but she has no regrets or guilt feeling how she felt towards him. This was her daughter. She didn't know, but it didn't matter. What was she supposed to think? But for Dave... He still has difficulties working through the fact that Carrie ever doubted him, stating in an interview, There's a hurt that will never pass. I've had things said to me that are more hurtful than anything that's ever been said to me in my life. People that should have had 100% faith in me didn't. And that's a hurt that's never going to go away. Three weeks after Amber's remains were discovered, she was finally laid to rest. On April 16, 2010, John Albert Gardner III pleaded guilty to killing Amber and Chelsea 
and to the attack on the jogger who kicked his ass and escaped, Candace. But Amber's mom, Carrie, she wanted more from Gardner. More than just the guilty plea and left to rot away in prison for the rest of his life. She wanted some answers to some questions that had been eating away at her. She wanted to know what Amber was saying in her last moments on this earth. But she was not going to be able to have a face-to-face confrontation with him, at least not right away. So she tried confronting Gardner's mom, that psychiatric nurse who began plying her boy with psychiatric drugs starting at the age of six, who never went public with any kind of statement. In an interview, Carrie said, It pisses me off that the mom didn't go public and say, I'm sorry that my son is a monster. He's still my son. I still love him because he's my son, but I'm sorry. I'm reaching out to the families and apologizing for his behavior. She just ran, and I just think that's weak. But two days before sentencing, Carrie was approved for a meeting with Gardner. The police gave her some pointers when talking to him face-to-face. You can't show any rage or any anger. If she did that, she was not going to get any answers to her questions. So she tried her best to go into this with that mindset. What she mainly wanted to know was how did he get to Amber? How did all of this happen? How did he get her into his car? And in this case, she got some answers, which you don't always often see. You don't always see families of victims get answers from killers. And who knows if they're even going to get the truth. Carrie seemed to walk away satisfied with what Gardner had to say because it made sense. If that's even possible when your child is murdered. He told Carrie that he was driving in their neighborhood at about 7 in the morning when he saw Amber walking alone along an empty side street. For whatever reason, Amber really wasn't where her family thought she would have been or where she was supposed to have been because she wasn't really near the school. In an interview with CBS, Gardner himself described what happened. He said he passed her while he was driving down the street. That was the first time he saw her. He pulled his vehicle up next to her. His windows were rolled down. He had a knife, but he also told her that he had a gun and to get into the car or things were going to get worse. He described the look on Amber's face as being one of shock and surprise. And she asked him if he was kidding. He yelled at her, no, get the F in the car. He proceeded to drive to a remote location. And this was one of those locations that had previously been picked up on his GPS monitoring device. As I was driving, I put the music on. She wanted to hear music so she could pretend that she wasn't there. And she asked me why I was doing it. What was wrong? As he drove, Amber continued to badger Gardner, peppering him with questions, pleading with him to let her go. Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Gardner told Amber's mom that she never cried. Not one tear. When we got to the Paula area, I turned into like a little plateau dirt area that was just off the road. 
And that's where everything, the rest of it, took place. After he raped Amber, he took his knife and stabbed her. In a half-hour meeting, Gardner filled in all the blanks, answered all the questions that Carrie had about what Amber's final moments were like. But it really didn't sadden her. I'm certain Carrie had plenty of sadness over the course of the year and change since she last kissed her child goodbye. But she was overcome with a sense of relief, like this giant weight had been lifted off her. If there was ever a chance for any kind of closure, this was it for her, because she got her answers. She had been wallowing in darkness for more than a year. This finally brought the first glimmers of light and it felt good and I think we can all understand that and dreamers I kind of think that's what Beth Holloway was looking for when she was granted a visit with her daughter Natalie's suspected killer Joran Vandersloot she was famously taken to the Castro Castro prison in Peru to confront Vandersloot where he was and is serving a 28-year sentence for the murder of Stephanie Flores Ramirez, five years to the day after Natalie disappeared in Aruba. All of this was captured on hidden camera. But Beth left without any answers from him. He said that he was brought to the room by force. And I don't know if you all have watched the video, and it's sad because you can so hear the desperation in Beth's voice doing everything that she can to convince Vandersloot that her only intention is to find a way to move past this. But she can't until she has some answers. But Vandersloot, he stonewalls her. He just told her that it was difficult for him to talk to her there, and if he could have her address, he would write to her. He promised he would write. But he blamed all of his actions and poor decisions on gambling and trying to make money for gambling. Which, you know, is why he made the attempt to extort money from Beth, if you recall, back in March of 2010. He had told Beth or her attorney that he would reveal the location of Natalie's remains for $250,000. So they arranged for him to be given 10% of that, and it seems that that had been the money that he used to travel to Peru for gambling, at which point he became acquainted with Stephanie. Anyway, off topic, maybe we can save Vandersloot for a vacation series or something. That would take us to all sorts of places, right? Aruba, Alabama, Netherlands, Peru. So many layers to that case. Anyhow, unlike Beth, Carrie got her answers. At Gardner's sentencing, the families of Amber and Chelsea were each given the chance to address him and the court with their impact statements, at which point Gardner was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. After his sentencing, Gardner spoke to CBS again. I am the most dangerous type of sexual predator. I will kill. I know I will. I'm the type that needs to be locked up forever. He said that he had been violent for as long as he can remember and that he's been on medications for as long as he can remember too nearly two dozen throughout the course of his life. The types of medications that are given to help control severe psychiatric conditions. But he said nothing helped him control his rage. 
I've done things to my family. I've hurt them. I've hit people. I've beaten people. I've done a lot of things that I regret in my life and I wish I could take back. But I still do the same things over and over again. I'm on meds now and you can see the anger in my eyes just trying to talk. I get angry. I blow up. I explode. I don't know how to describe it. I feel like I'm out of control with myself at times and I go and do things that I regret for the rest of my life. He described being haunted by nightmares about his victims, that these nightmares torture him and this is what he lives with, though he does not have trouble saying that he has remorse. Honestly, I do have remorse. The word remorse, I regret it completely. I don't even know the meaning of that word remorse. I say regret. I regret everything that I've done. But the DA called BS. Gardner cried at sentencing while Amber and Chelsea's parents reminded him what they took from their families. And the DA said it was all an act. He is a sociopath. I don't think any sociopath is capable of remorse. I think what we saw was Mr. Gardner trying to make us feel that he had remorse. And the true Gardner came out when Candace asked him in court, How's your nose? Yep, dreamers, she did that. And it was quite a provocative moment in court when she said that in her statement to the court and to Gardner, referring to the blow that she delivered and enabled her to outrun him and save her life. Through her tears, she said, My name is Candace Moncayo. It's been six months since John Gardner attacked me. And some mornings I still wake up screaming. I'm a runner, and I'm always gloried by the solitude and peace of a long run. Those moments are when I'm most myself, and I can run along in the silence of my own mind. And while I still run, and I will run for the rest of my life, that peace has been shattered by the actions of this man. I have spent countless hours terrified and nauseous, sprinting like a frightened rabbit from the memories and the possibilities of an assault. In a single instance, this man took from me the safety and solitude of my own mind. And during every run, I fight to get it back. Every day, I lace up my shoes and relive the moments of terror, the conviction that I was going to die and the pain and the guilt that comes with being the one to survive. And every day, after I have refought this battle, the Lord takes my hand and guides me to the safety and security of His presence. And at the end of every run, I am covered with the knowledge of God's love and His assurance that both Chelsea and Amber are now safe and at peace in a place where no one can ever harm them again. So because of this, I did not come here today to make a statement. The pain, sadness, the grief that my family and I have experienced is communal. Chelsea and Amber's families have already expressed the rage and anguish much better than I ever could because their sacrifices are utterly unimaginable. And truly there are no words to describe the depths of despair and sorrow 
we have all experienced because of this man. I came here today to stand as a witness for Chelsea and Amber. I came to watch as justice is served for the horrifying acts that he has committed and to stand in the place that they should have occupied. I came here today for all of the women who have ever been victims of violence to ask with Chelsea and Amber's voices to remove this man from our world, to make us all safer by locking him up permanently, and to finally free us from this nightmare that he has created. And finally, to ask him, how his nose is. And when she was done, she smiled. And when the camera focused in on Gardner, this anger rose from deep inside him. And it was felt by everyone in that courtroom there to witness this moment. He angrily turned to his attorney and mouthed the words, She didn't hit me. She's a liar. And out loud, he said, she did that for publicity. I've watched the video dreamers and you can literally see this rage swell inside him. His chest puffed up and his face twisted and contorted. He would have exploded if he wasn't shackled and surrounded by sheriff's deputies. And of that moment... The district attorney pointed to it and said, Just like that, the rage in his eyes, that's the real John Gardner. John Albert Gardner III is 40 years old today and is currently being housed at Mule Creek State Prison in Ione, California. Chelsea's younger brother, who was 13 when his sister was taken from him, released a documentary in 2014 entitled, Chelsea's light. In September of 2010, Chelsea's law, championed by her family and the foundation they began in her memory, was signed into law that, in short, increases the penalties, parole provisions, and oversight for the worst of the worst sex offenders in society, the sexual predator that attacks children. Carrie, Amber's mom, eventually reached a place of forgiveness because that's what she feels Amber would have wanted. And last we heard, her and Dave began the healing process together as they eventually moved back in to raise their daughter. They were taking things one day at a time. So that leaves us with the burning question, how did a violent sexual predator rack up 168 parole violations on his GPS ankle monitor managed to have his monitor removed? And how was it he was able to go on to carry out these crimes, yet not fall under any suspicion? He was a sex offender, right? He was registered. When children go missing, they look up the registry to see if anyone matches witness descriptions of the suspected perpetrator, right? So why? Well, the simple answer is, is that the state of California screwed up. They let these girls down by failing to protect them from a violent predator like Gardner. Was there an investigation into the system's failure? Oh, you betcha. Let's talk about that. 
When Chelsea disappeared, several witnesses came forward and gave a description of a man that they had seen in the area. Their descriptions appeared to closely match John Gardner. Of course, nobody knew who he was at the time, just an anonymous white guy, about six foot two or 1.88 meters tall. Brown hair, brown eyes. If you see pictures of him, he's pretty average. But I think if his mugshot were shown to witnesses, they could have identified him. And he should have been identified. He was living in the area. He's got to be registered as a sex offender, theoretically. And he was indeed registered. So when investigators went to look through the list of sex offenders in the San Diego area, he surely would have matched witness descriptions. But his picture was not among those that they looked at. And the reason why is because John Gardner was registered in a different county, thereby enabling him to avoid detection. When Amber disappeared, he lived two miles away from the place where he abducted her. Two miles. And he didn't ping on the registry when a year later, Chelsea vanished. John Albert Gardner III perfectly highlighted how someone like him was able to go undetected even while supposedly being kept under the watchful eye of a system that is designed to keep tabs on extremely dangerous perpetrators like him and keep children safe. California gave this man essentially what amounted to a slap on the wrist for severely beating and raping a 13-year-old girl when he was 21 years old. Five years for that crime, dreamers. That's it. And not only was he let out after only five years, they kept him on parole for three more years and a little bit longer than that with a GPS ankle monitor. All the while, he was constantly racking up violations. His GPS alarmed every time he went someplace he should not have been. And after all those violations... Just four months before Amber was taken and killed, the Department of Corrections here in California decided, well, we had all these violations, but we don't want to deal with them anymore. We've got a million other criminals to deal with. He hasn't hurt anybody else since, so let's just take his ankle monitor off and let the child rapist go about his life. Was it that simple? I don't know, Dreamers. I don't know anything. All I do know is that it took two, almost three more killings for the state to finally open up their eyes and see that a very, very dangerous killer was lurking the streets. And it wasn't like he was some unknown nobody like the Golden State Killer, John Joseph D'Angelo. He raped and beat a 13-year-old child. Gardner was in the system. He was a convicted sex offender. He raped and beat a 13-year-old child. He was on the registry. Did I mention that he raped and beat a 13-year-old child? How much more of a warning sign do these people need to know that this guy needs close monitoring for the rest of his life? Was the rape and beating of a 13-year-old child not warning enough? Apparently not, because it took two more lives for them to pull their heads out of their asses. And when it was revealed what Garner was able to get away with on their watch, they were going to have to face some hard questions. I love California. 
I love talking about California and the justice I've seen this state dispense, but we failed Amber and Chelsea, and they paid with their lives. The public was outraged and immediately began calling for stricter laws when it came to the oversight of sex offenders. When he was convicted in 2000 for sexually assaulting and beating a 13-year-old child, which, by the way, he managed to lure her into his home with an invitation to watch the movie Patch Adams. The five years that he served was out of a six-year sentence. He pleaded guilty, and under the terms of his plea, the judge could have sentenced him to 11 years, and a court-appointed psychiatrist took the stand and urged the maximum describing Gardner as a, quote, extremely poor candidate for treatment because of his refusal to take responsibility for his actions, unquote. But the judge split the difference and sentenced him to a little more than half of that, and he served a little under half that. When the psychiatrist got word that years later, Gardner was responsible for two murders, one of his colleagues spoke to the media, and he said that he was saddened by the fact that his assessment was not taken more seriously back in 2000. How much more of a bigger red flag do you need than that? Answer, you don't. The red flags were flying all over the place. Gardner had been registered as a sex offender in Escondido, which is in San Diego County, for the period of two years from 2008 to 2010. In November of 2009, his GPS was removed. On January 7, 2010, he registered as a sex offender 55 miles or 88 kilometers north in Lake Elsinore, California, which is in Riverside County. And 49 days later, Chelsea vanished and Gardner did not appear on investigator searches of the registry. And it was because he had reported that he moved to Riverside County. Something even more troubling, dreamers? On October 28, 2009, a 16-year-old girl reported that she ran from a man who stopped next to her while she was walking to ask for directions, but then tried to force her into the car at gunpoint, though she managed to get away. She described the man in ways that matched Gardner. About 30 to 35 years old, he had a crew cut and a square jaw. Her sketch looked a lot like him. So when they checked the local registered sex offenders in Riverside County when this happened, Gardner didn't pop up on that search either because he was still registered in San Diego County. Does this not sound like John Albert Gardner was outsmarting the system by making sure he was attacking children outside the county in which he was registered? It sure does, doesn't it? Oh, and couldn't a GPS ankle cuff detect when a sex offender goes places he's not supposed to go? Aren't they supposed to stay within the borders of the county in which they're registered? And his parole officer should get an alert anytime something like that happens. And police are immediately dispatched. They track his GPS location and take him in for violating terms of his parole. I mean, he was still wearing his ankle cuff when the 16-year-old Riverside girl managed to escape his kidnapping attempt, right? Surely authorities were alerted to his whereabouts. Oh, wait. That's right. Gardner did this 168 times and nobody did a damn thing about it, did they? Yeah. Right. 
So what's the deal with that, California? 160 times wasn't enough to get this deviant pervert off the streets? The Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation just sat back and let Gardner troll Southern California, racking up violation after violation all along the way and never did a damn thing about it. Oh, except that they decided that they were okay with taking off his ankle monitor. Yeah, and four months later, Amber Dubois was dead. One year later, Chelsea King was dead. It's a fact we can't look away from. The failure of everyone who handled John Albert Gardner's case. The district attorneys, the judge, the parole system, the Department of Corrections. Everyone. They all failed Amber and Chelsea. Not to mention the friends and family of John Gardner who came to his 2000 sentencing hearing to cast a positive light on the predator who spoke highly of him as a charming guy who would shovel snow or carry groceries in for his neighbors. Yeah, okay, are you kidding me? These people got on the stand to plead for a lenient sentence for raping and beating a 13-year-old child? Did I mention that? Because he can shovel freaking snow and carry in your damn groceries? I don't know how these people sleep at night. If Chelsea and Amber's blood were on my hands... I'd have many, many sleepless nights. I probably would never be able to look in the mirror again. Yeah, he had his sympathizers. A psychiatrist who treated Gardner for bipolar disorder wrote in his notes that Gardner was extremely remorseful for his inappropriate sexual relations with two girls aged 13 and 14 and was highly motivated to get help. Really? This doctor called the sexual assault of two children inappropriate sexual relations? It makes it sound like the relations were in somehow some way consensual. An ex-girlfriend in high school testified that she had never once in the entire time that she knew Gardner did she ever feel scared or threatened by him. Right. Neither was Ted Bundy's girlfriend when he was killing either. They don't kill their girlfriends. They find strangers to kill. Gardner was on his way to becoming a full-fledged serial killer if he had not been stopped by his own admission. And he had two children of his own at the time of his arrest. Twin boys, both under the age of five, also with quite a young woman. I don't know exactly how old she was, but I do know that she was a lot younger than him. And Gardner's own mother wrote a letter to the judge in 2000 and explained that her son fully accepted responsibility for his actions. I don't know about you dreamers, but I have heard enough about how cool of a guy John Gardner was. I'm about to lose my breakfast here. In a nutshell, Gardner's case was put under investigation and upon review, a number of serious issues were identified. This is what the overall synopsis of the report said. Our review revealed that during Gardner's parole supervision, the department did not identify his aberrant behavior, including unlawfully entering the grounds of a state prison, a felony, as well as numerous instances of violating the conditions of his parole. Had the department aggressively monitored Gardner's GPS data during parole, 
it would have identified his criminal act and parole violations, enabling the department to refer them to appropriate action. Successful prosecution of Gardner's crime and administrative action in response to his parole violations would have sent Gardner back to prison, making it impossible for him to murder the two young girls and commit the attempted sexual assault. Indeed, the San Diego District Attorney advised us, had the department brought it to our attention that Gardner's criminal act of entering the grounds of a state prison, she would have charged Gardner with a third strike felony, which if Gardner were convicted, could have resulted him serving a 25 years to life sentence. The department did not identify Gardner's crime and parole violations, even though it had placed a GPS monitoring device on Gardner. The Office of the Inspector General found that the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation did not identify the felony Gardner committed, which would have returned him to prison and thereby potentially prevented him from murdering two young girls and assaulting another. It did not identify Gardner's repeated parole violations, including the following, being within 100 yards of where children congregate, residing within a half mile of a school, leaving his residence during curfew, and having access to a storage facility. That it has recently developed a GPS policy, but the policy still falls short of aggressively monitoring sex offenders for the following reasons. It requires a review of only 13% of the GPS data of 4,500 sex offender parolees monitored under the department's monitoring program. Do you know what that means, streamers? Of all of the hours of the day that these sex offenders are running around with these GPS things on their ankles, only 13% of their activities have to be looked at before they're just checked off as being okay. It is unlikely to have detected Gardner's crime at a state prison and his numerous parole violations, and it may limit the parole agent's available time in the field. Basically, what they're saying is they don't have the time to thoroughly look at the GPS data. That it could enhance public safety in the following areas. Review GPS data in batches rather than point by point using trained specialists and not parole agents to review GPS data and receive most system alerts and increase its use of GPS zones. In September of 2007, it was not required that parole agents review the GPS data associated with the device. We identified this weakness in our November 2009 special report entitled The California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation's Supervision of Parolee Philip Garrido. And just to refresh, Garrido is the one who abducted 11-year-old J.C. Degard in 1991, but was found alive 18 years later in 2009. In March of 2010, the department issued a GPS monitoring policy that required parole agents to periodically review GPS data for parolees such as Gardner. Nonetheless, the new passive GPS policies although improved, remain deficient in meeting the department's goal of aggressively monitoring all sex offender parolees. Under its provisions, the department remained unlikely to have detected crimes such as Gardner's felony or many of his parole violations. The department's current policy still ignores 87% of the GPS data collected for all parolees such as Gardner. 
This policy also limits the time that parole agents spend in the field imposing on them laborious GPS data review techniques. However, by using criminal intelligence specialists and better review techniques, the department could free up parole agents' time, thereby enhancing public safety through effective parole supervision. And from there, they listed numerous ways in order to address the deficiencies that would increase the amount of attention and detail paid to the GPS information collected from all the sex offenders who have a monitor attached to their ankle. And this report went on for about 41 pages and basically outlined that not only did the GPS system fail, but also the seven times that parole agents had considered revoking Gardner's parole and decided not to. The records show that he was allowed to remain on parole rather than return to prison. Six of those times the decision was made by parole officers, but the seventh time was elevated to the Board of Parole Hearings, which has the authority to revoke parole, but decided to continue with the conditions of his parole. I'm going to finish this up with some words from a 2012 article entitled Creation of a Monster by Don Botter of the San Diego Reader, which gives you more of an insight into Gardner's troubled background, much more than I touched on at the opening of this story. The picture of stabbing her is just no memory I'd like. I thought I'd like it, but I didn't. I like the raping part. I don't like the killing part especially if it's bloody. That was John Albert Gardner III speaking matter-of-factly in a five-hour prison interview about his 2009 abduction, rape, murder of 14-year-old Amber Dubois of Escondido. A year after murdering Amber, Gardner, a severely disturbed registered sex offender, captured, raped, and murdered 17-year-old Chelsea King of Poway, who lived near the Rancho Bernardo area home of Gardner's mother, with whom John often stayed. Not long before murdering Chelsea, Gardner told a psychiatrist that he was in danger of hurting himself or others, but the shrink just sent him home with more medicine. Five days later, John went on a suicidal binge of methamphetamine and other illicit drugs, which landed him in the emergency room, wrote Caitlin Rother, the author who interviewed Gardner in jail and wrote a book entitled Lost Girls. The night he murdered Chelsea, he was wildly out of control, wrote Rother, who interviewed the mother, a psychiatric nurse, several of Gardner's former girlfriends and family members who had not previously opened up to researchers. In the prison interview, Rother asked him why he raped Chelsea. In my state of mind at the time, I wanted to have sex and I was going to have sex. Rother then asked him why he killed the teenager. Witness. Can't tell if you're not there to tell. If someone else was there, I would have killed them too. This draws a terrifying portrait of a man who was sweet and cuddly one day and a crazed killer the next. The perfect storm of nature and nurture doomed him psychologically, and perfect storms of being at the wrong place at the wrong time doomed his teenage victims. In detail, Gardner is described as the complex mix of genetic and environmental risk factors, including addiction, alcoholism, physical abuse, mental illness, 
mental disorders, a rotating series of father figures, repeated moves from house to house, financial instability, including multiple bankruptcies, molestation, and incest that ultimately turned him into a monster. In his teens, Gardner was diagnosed with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, paranoia, and conduct disorder, but he was never considered schizophrenic. He was clearly bipolar, one sign of which was a high sex drive which can go into overdrive during a manic state, delusions of grandeur, and of superhuman powers or skills. One of Gardner's high school lovers said that in bed, Gardner was known as the Energizer Bunny. Yeah, God, that makes me sick. He could go over and over and over repeatedly, and that could go on like that for hours. And there wasn't anything sexually he wasn't willing to do. He was really focused on pleasing his partner. But fidelity was another matter. He admitted to cheating on his girlfriend more than 80 times. She learned that at a friend's party, he had had sex with five different girls in the course of the evening. He became the father of twin boys by still another young lady. And yet, in the prison interview, he told Rother, I needed years of therapy to get over the anger I have towards women. He also had sex with his aunt more than once, although these did not appear to be mania-induced episodes. He claimed that she was the aggressor. She said that he was. Needless to say, Gardner's family background was dysfunctional, and it was hardly surprising that he had drug and alcohol problems as other family members had. Dreamers, I am not really moved by any of these mitigating factors, however, because the system knew or should have known this and what a man like Gardner was capable of. They should have done more to stop him. In May of 2000, when Gardner was 21, he pleaded guilty to two counts of lewd and lascivious acts and one count of false imprisonment. He confessed, I unlawfully touched a child under 14 by humping her with the intent to gratify my sexual desires. I also unlawfully touched a child under 14 by touching her vaginal area with my hand. He also restrained her with violence. But a forensic psychiatrist said Gardner does not suffer from a psychotic disorder. He is simply a bad guy who inordinately is interested in young girls. Gardner was a danger to the community and would not benefit from sexual offender treatment because he took no responsibility for his actions. Gardner spent five years in prison and in 2003, he was placed in a prison mental health facility because he was a threat to himself and others. The next year, he was talking about killing correctional officers. He also said he wanted to kill his attorney and the judge who sentenced him. He had a psychotic break. He completed parole in 2008, despite several term violations. During his parole, he was considered a, quote, moderate low risk sex offender, a group that has a 12.8% chance of reoffending in five years, writes Rother. Moderate low risk? As the Amber and Chelsea story electrified San Diego and the world media, many people asked why Gardner, with an egregious record known to law enforcement, was permitted to be a danger in society, particularly young girls. 
Forensic psychiatrist Mark Kalish argued that the court in the 2000 case did have the information to foresee this tragedy. After all, a psychiatrist had told the judge that Gardner would continue to be a danger to underage girls in the community. That psychiatrist had recommended the longest sentence possible under the law. But others still saw the situation differently. The state of California was in desperate financial shape. There wasn't money to implement reforms. Chelsea's law, passed in 2010 to monitor sex offenders more closely, got off to a sputtering start for economic reasons, but now may finally gain momentum. So, because the state of California found itself in financial dire straits, two families had to pay the ultimate price for that. That is utter bullshit. And that brings this episode of California Dreaming to a close. If you would like to discuss this case in more detail or any others that we have covered, please feel free to request and join the California Dreaming official Facebook discussion page. There we have cultivated an amazing community of listeners and True Crown fans who share their thoughts and opinions on all of the cases that we cover as well as current true crime stories, other news events, TV shows that we enjoy, documentaries we've watched, books that we've read, Fred's guilt, the word moist, whatever you find that you'd like to share, please come and join us. You can also follow the show on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and on Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. California Dreaming is proudly brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network. We are a podcast production company located in Los Angeles, California, with the mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to, to consistently improve upon our current roster of shows, to develop new content that appeals to people all over the world, and to provide a thriving community for listeners and podcasters alike. I am so proud to be a part of an amazing group of shows and talented hosts, so please visit us at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. You will also find links to all of our shows, our merchandise store, where you can find all the California Dreaming stuff there. And there are a couple new designs that we just uploaded. So take a look at those. Get your t-shirt or your mug or your tote bag. Take a picture and post it in our group or on Instagram for everybody to see. Or if you just want to email us with your feedback or your comments or your questions or to just let us know what you think, that's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Oh, and one last thing before I forget, let's do our birthday shoutouts for the first week of July. Today, as I'm recording this, is July 2nd, and it just so happens to be Chris T's birthday. Happy birthday. I love you. Thank you so much for your support. July 3rd is Samantha C., Terry S., and Diane P. July 4th, Independence Day, which is just a couple days away, is Aaron G., And on July 6th is Tony B. So happy birthday to all of you and happy birthday to the United States of America. This week we are having our 4th of July celebrations and I am really excited because on that day, me and my family are going to go see Toy Story 4, which I've been waiting for for a couple of weeks now. So please have a really fun and safe holiday Enjoy all of the fireworks. I know that it's not a thing everywhere around the world and the world doesn't evolve around the United States. 
but it is a huge and fun family holiday that's one of my favorites, especially in the midst of summer when there's really not a whole lot going on. Anyway, thank you so much for listening, my friends. I love you. I'm your host, Roseanne. Until next time, sweet dreams and happy Independence Day.